My name's uh, Dale Fender. I'm one of the pastors here at Central Bible Church. Uh, some of you already know a few of our pastors are, are gone, gone missing a little bit. Uh, Pastor Ben is in Israel. I think he's in Jerusalem even as we speak. He's, uh, I think yesterday he was on Mount Olives, Mount Olivet where Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. Pretty amazing to, for him to be there and see those places. Uh, Pastor Andrew Pratt has gone with a bunch of the high schoolers on a retreat. And if you'd be praying that God would just bless the rest of that treat as it wraps up here today. So that would be a great joy. Um, if you have your Bible, you can flip with me to Mark chapter 5. Um, as many of you know, the f- Bible is full of a lot of different genres, a lot of different kinds of writings. Um, but the predominant way that the Bible is written in is in a story. From beginning to end, it, it flows as a story, and most of the Bible was written that way. The Gospels are written as stories. And uh, as we prepare to continue our study and to, to shrouk right through the latter half of Mark chapter 5, we're going to be, uh, I want you to, if you would, uh, try to remember some of the characters in this story. And the one that might come to your mind, if you're familiar with the end of Mark 5, is a guy named Jairus. He was a leader among God's people. And I want to tell you, rather retell you the story that you could find in your Bibles in Mark 5. And so some of the convictions, there's three convictions that I have about retelling a story in the Bible. And uh, these are three of the convictions. One, and this is, this is, these convictions are so that we can remain rooted in the reality of God's Word and not just spin empty tales, but try to really think through God's Word. The first uh, uh, conviction that I have is that in the retelling of any biblical story, I want it to be biblically saturated, to be rooted in God's Word. Now, I'm not going to, uh, to read the whole story right now, but as I continue to tell a story, I'm going to, at some point or other, quote the entire of what we find in, in Mark 5, verse 21 through 43. A second conviction that I have is uh, that this should be theologically sound, something that's rooted in what the church has affirmed for all of history, has affirmed for thousands of years. In fact, the, the story that we're going to be looking at in Mark 5 is really a story within the story. And that's the best way that we can do theology is whenever you study a story, you understand the entirety of the story and try to put it in light of that. So I want to draw your attention to the big story as I flesh out what this must have been like. Again, this retelling of, of Jesus and this, the hemorrhaging woman and Jairus' daughter, it's, uh, it's not rudderless, but it's guided by what we see in God's Word. Um, so a third conviction, though, that I'd like you to know about is the, the conviction that this story should be imaginative. It should help you to imagine and to meditate upon God's Word. By imagining, I mean there's so much that God's Word affirms and teaches us in this story, but for us to dwell on what was this like for the people who sat there and saw Jesus do these things. So in this story, I hope that you can, uh, as we enjoy looking at the details of the passage, I hope that you can see these three convictions held to as we get into this. Um, again, we're going to be doing it story form. So if you are a have a childlike heart and you enjoy hearing stories, kick back. If you're an adult and you enjoy movies, I encourage you to kick back also and to imagine what this was like. So sit back if you want to, open your Bible to Mark 5, verse 21. Before we enjoy this story, I was wondering if you just pray with me, ask God's help for me and for all of us to have open hearts. Lord, we praise you for your word. I thank you that though you dwell in eternity, that you are the Lord of history and that you humbly entered history. Lord, that you would come into time and take up a place. And Lord, we don't know and we didn't know what love was until you came. We thank you that, Lord, you gave love a face and you gave love a name and you gave love away like the sky because of rain and sun. Lord, you're amazing. Help us. 
Help us to see you. Lord, would you remove pride and fear and give us humble hearts, hearts that can hear you, that can hear you say, don't be afraid, only believe. Help us to hear you this morning. Father, would you, would you fill up my own heart and, and guide my tongue? We pray, I pray in your name that it would encourage the faint-hearted, that it would help the weak. Lord, the people who need to be exhorted from being lazy, they would hear your word this morning. God, we want to fall down before you to trust your timing in all of our lives. We praise you that, Lord, how often you are out of sync with our plans and our schedules. We pray in your name that you'd help us to get in step with your plans and your way of doing things. We do trust you to do that, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I even saw the teacher that hot afternoon, I, I knew that, that he was back in town. Rumors spread quickly where I live, and he had just left the evening before, and uh, he was back already. I didn't know why exactly then, but uh, I wondered how this man kept up the energy, how he kept moving forward. Rumor had it that uh, his disciples and him had sailed right into the crazy storm we'd had the night before, and that he had gotten to the other side, the region of the Decapolis, these Greek cities, but that when he got there, they kicked him out. Typical of those Gentiles, totally rejecting us. Well, he'd had some problems. I didn't exactly understand what had happened, but as I approached, I heard one person say something about how a whole herd of pigs had been drowned in the sea. Now, I can't help but be happy when I hear that kind of stuff. So I, as a good synagogue leader, I, I, uh, I started to almost smile as I heard that part of what had just happened in the last 24 hours, but... Uh, Something weighed too heavy on my heart, and I couldn't help but would be a little more sober than starting to laugh. Everything, everything that week had changed, and it had changed quick. Earlier that week, my, my 12-year-old daughter was playing in the street with her friends, and like any other 12-year-old girl, she was just enjoying life, except that she wasn't just like any other girl. She was my daughter. She was one that I had raised, that my wife and I had raised to love the Torah, to love God. She was like all of our hopes and dreams wrapped up into one little bursting personality. But by the middle of this past week, she'd grown feverish. And, and I, I had reached out to the doctors, but they couldn't do anything. In the past two days, we knew that her next breath could be her last breath. And I, I had, again, the doctors, they tried a thing or two, but nothing helped. And I quoted every blessing I knew in the Torah and in the prophets and the Psalms. I was pleading with God, but every hour she grew worse rather than better. Until this last hour, I knew that death was at hand. And, and that was right when I heard that Jesus had come back across the lake. The instant I heard that, I threw my tunic on, and I left my daughter's bedside for the first time in three days. The family, the whole community was already buzzing around our house like vultures waiting for her to die. They knew it was coming. And I went through them as quick as I possibly could, and as fast as my tired legs and my sad heart could carry me. And as I pressed through the large crowd that was gathered all around Jesus, I I couldn't help but hear one of his own disciples, one of the ones who trusted him most, 
They, they were talking to each other. He was the one that was a little taller with the dark beard. And he said to one of the other disciples, he said something like, I can't believe it. He calms the storm. Incredible. And the next moment he looks at us and says, why are you so afraid? Don't you yet have faith? I, I thought we were the ones that believed. And he claims we didn't have faith. And as I heard this, I thought to myself, I've got to somehow prove to this man that I mean what I'm doing. I, I really do believe. I, I want Jesus to know. I want to get his attention. So as I, as I was thinking on this conversation, I, I pressed through the last few people. The whole crowd was vying for his attention. And as I did this, I did what any desperate person would have done. I just, I just threw myself. I, Jairus, this leader of the synagogue, threw myself at the feet of this man and I just said, listen, I need your attention. I need your attention. My daughter, she's at the point of death. Come, would you just lay your hand on her so she could be made well and, and live? As I started to beg this, I, I couldn't help but think that he might ignore me because he, I was mixed with doubt even at that moment. I had heard many of the things that Jesus had done, but the synagogue leaders were saying, don't trust this man. He's doing things against the law. Jesus, just earlier, near a synagogue near us, there was a man who he had reached out in the middle of, the, in the middle of worship and had reached out and had touched the man's hand, and his withered hand was entirely made whole. I'd heard rumors of the crazy, amazing things that this Jesus was doing. And right when I told him this, he said that he would come immediately. And that's something I loved about this young man. The, 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 the fact that he was so decisive. He said he would come immediately. Right then I thought to myself, now this is a man I could work with. But by the end of that day, I was shocked by his use of time. As Jesus lifted me up from my prostrate position, he lifted me right up and he, I was bowed down and he said, he could tell, I could tell, and I'm thinking not just of Jesus, I could tell that others around me, other officials and leaders were thinking, he's just doing this because he's desperate. He doesn't really believe in Jesus. It's just desperation that turned him towards him. And they kind of smirked knowing that it was more for my daughter than for Jesus that I was bowing there that day. Listen, when Jesus showed up that day, it felt like my whole world was coming to an end. I knew at least my daughter's life was coming to an end. And, and I, could re, I could remember this moment, like moment by moment, like her life was, trick, was trickling like sand between my own hands. And, and I barely recognized the fatigue on Jesus' face. But I thought more of myself than anybody else. And, and as I was thinking about myself, we left immediately and we started going through this huge crowd, a crowd that was some from my town, some from the region around us, some people I'd never seen before in my life just thronging around Jesus. Now, I could understand why they wanted to see him. I could understand that. And at, at the center of, of this moving mass was, was myself and Jesus and then his 12 closest friends. And then around that were a bigger group of his disciples, more than 100. I, I couldn't count them all. And around that was this whole group of just crowds of people trying to follow. And we're, I'm trying to get through these narrow streets to get to my house, and everybody is in my way. Every step, 
I both felt hope growing because Jesus was getting that much closer to my daughter. But also every step I could feel my daughter's life slipping between my fingertips. Now, his disciples, they thought they were really helpful. <laughs> they didn't know what in the world they were doing. It's like, it's one thing for two people to walk through a narrow street, but to have 12 guys bunched up around one man? They thought they were some sort of like secret security, trying to protect Jesus from the masses. And then you add that to all the women and all the disciples, and all of them are trying to be as close to Jesus as possible, protect him from the crowd. And we're going through these narrow streets, and it is taking up time. These, these men thought they were functionally helpful, but the truth is they seemed like they were always in the way. Typical of disciples. Then right when uh, it seemed like we were getting really close, right when my hope was winning a firmer place in my heart, Jesus, Jesus noticed something had happened to him. Later on, he said it was like power had gone out of him. And when he paused, it was like I lost my heart. He said, some, he said, looked at everybody around him, he says, who touched my garments? We were five blocks from my dying daughter when he asked it. Just five blocks when despair began to again get the firmer grip on my heart. I could have almost pulled out my beard at that point. Jesus' disciples, again, very helpful men, they started discussing the nature of the crowd and that, that, and that Jesus didn't understand that so many people pressing around him would obviously mean that he would be touched. Incredibly informative men. His disciples, they said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? They thought they were so wise. They almost started an argument with their teacher right there. They said, Jesus, if you want, we can... We can leave and go back down to the lake and get into the boat and hit the waters again. Jesus asked again, who touched my garments? And he started looking around to see who had done it. The only thing that calmed me at that moment was when I would look into Jesus' face. He was unhurried, but not because he didn't care. Somehow he seemed to love me more than I even loved my daughter, and, and I know that I could wait if it was with him. I got the sense that he was somehow waiting on me, waiting on me to trust in him. That this unhurried pace, the way that he spoke to me, let me know that he had more minutes and hours on his mind than I did. Like, like time itself was more of a tool in his hand than a trial. Like it was more of an opportunity for him than a distress. But I, I still, I, as I saw this going on, this, all this waiting, I, I could almost pull out my hair and I reached for it. And I, I remembered this saying that I heard Jesus teach one time. He said, and which one of you, by being anxious, can add even one span to the length of your life? And I remembered as I was almost pulling out my hair, the saying that he once had taught that not one little sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father. And that even the hairs on your head are all numbered. And I thought to myself, I start pulling out my hair. God's going to have to renumber these babies. And so I just, just let it go. And I tried to kind of fold my arms and 
do what I could. And uh, I, I just tried to remember that he was obviously more patient than I was, and I could learn something from him. And I mean, if you know, if you know what it's like to wait for a doctor or for a nurse while the one that you love is dying, if you know what it's like to see, to see life slipping away, well, no one feels as distressed as you do, and no one comes to help. Then you know how I felt that day as the crowd was pressing in, trying to pull at Jesus and get his attention. And, and they just wanted to look at him, and they just wanted to see him, but, but I, and they were curious about him. What I wanted my daughter to live. I wanted her to live and not die. Her life was slipping away every moment that passed, and it did a woman. At first, I didn't recognize her. Then a woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down and trembled and fell before Jesus and told him the whole truth. When I saw this woman, I knew who she was immediately. I knew her story. She's a leader of the synagogue. We, we knew a lot about the joys and the sorrows of people in our community. I knew her story. In fact, it was... It was about the time that my own daughter was born that she came and she stood outside of the synagogue one Sabbath day and she wouldn't enter to worship. Before that day, she had faithfully attended. She was always generous with her money. But that day after the service, a few of us leaders approached her and we asked her, why is it that you're standing so far from the synagogue? Why are you standing at such a distance? And she told us that for the past few days, she had been hemorrhaging. She had had a, a discharge of blood that she couldn't explain, and the doctors didn't know how to heal. And the doctors didn't seem like they would be able to diagnose it quickly. She said that she was unclean and that she couldn't sit on the public seat in the synagogue until she was better. We thanked her for honoring the law and for respecting the community, but none of us, none of us would lay our hands on her that day and pray for her. We just let her know that we would pray from a distance. Her giving at the synagogue that day came to an end. But occasionally I would get reports from a messenger or from a doctor about how she was and how she suffered much under many physicians and how she had spent all that she had, and that she was no better, but rather grew worse. It had been 12 long years. Every year that my own daughter got more socially aware and involved, this woman drew back more and more socially and was less involved. Nothing was helping. Everything was harming her. She, who had once been a leading giver and financially secure, now, in the last year, she wasn't even living in the town. She was standing on the edge of the town begging for a bit of food for her table. She lived now in a small, run-down hut, and we rarely saw her. There couldn't have been a person in the town who was more different than me. She was a woman, and I was a man. She was an outcast. I was a leader in the community. 
She was barely recognized when she came to the edge of the town begging for bread. But everywhere I went, whether in public or private, I was recognized as a man of God. I had approached Jesus openly in public, formally asking Jesus to my house to help with my daughter. And she had snuck up in the middle of the crowd and had quietly and quickly touched Jesus and tried to leave. She was sneaky. She was unclean. I was ritually clean. I could have walked into the very center of the temple in Jerusalem when she couldn't have even entered the outer courts of the temple. She couldn't have been more different than I. Sex, status, public recognition, her whole story, her approach to Jesus. And now how Jesus was focusing on her and not on my own daughter as life slipped from her. She had cut in line. Couldn't she just wait? Didn't she know? Didn't she know that, that Jesus had been formally asked to my house to help with my daughter? I mean, she had been dealing with this for 12 years. Couldn't she wait a few more minutes? Isn't there a better time? And as I told you, hers was a long and sad story, and yet she began to tell Jesus the whole truth about her story, starting at the beginning. And after telling her whole story and even confessing her wrong for touching him in public, she told him that she had heard reports about Jesus and how he, she had came up behind him and in the crowd and had touched his garment. And the entire time she's explaining this, I, I wanted to interrupt her and get Jesus' attention on more pressing issues. I kept thinking to myself, if he is going to be touching my daughter, he shouldn't be touching this unclean woman also. But Jesus was deep in conversation, and I couldn't interrupt him. She continued explaining how she had, had thought to herself that if I just touch even his garment, I'll be made well. And then she described how immediately the, the flow of blood had dried up and that she felt in her body that she had been healed from her disease. After hearing all of this, when my patience was stretched about as thin as a wire, about to break, Jesus, after hearing all of her, the whole story, with her gentle eyes, he smiled at the woman. He just said, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And just as he said that, just as he was speaking these words, my faithful servant, Timaeus, tugged on my garment, and he whispered to me, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Something broke right then. I said, I didn't even understand what he had said. I said, what? And he just said it a little louder this time. He said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? My world crashed down as they said this. Both statements kind of blurred in my mind. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any longer? 
One daughter was healed and one daughter was dead. Why one daughter and not the other daughter? Why? And at that moment, Jesus must have overheard what they had said to me. And Jesus said to me, me, the ruler of the synagogue, he said to me, do not fear, only believe. I felt a little bit insulted. Jesus had just said to this woman about this woman's faith that her faith had healed her. And now he looks at me and he saw me, all my doubts, all my disbelief. He saw right through me. He saw through all my garb, and he saw who I really was, and he said loud and clear to me, do not fear, only believe. She had faith, but I did not. Only believe. Fear and faith had been opposites in my experience. They, they were always fighting, as it were, and whenever one had the upper hand, the other seemed to disappear. And here this woman, with no status, an outcast from our synagogue, here she was, the one with faith, and I, a man of the book, a teacher of the synagogue, was kindly confronted by Jesus as a man who was dominated by fear, who was ruled by doubt. The time to heal my daughter had passed, and the thing that I feared had happened. How could death be undone? We were so close to my dead daughter by then. And I could hear the weeping from our house coming down the street, and I just joined in, and I just wept. Jesus quickly said, Peter, James, John, come with me. The rest of you wait here. You must have known how weak my faith was. He said, the five of us, the five of us, we left, and we began to weave our way through a shortcut to the side of my house. The rest of the walk to my house was like walking in a dream, like a nightmare. She was dead. What else was there to do? What else was there to fear? I know there's going to be a resurrection someday, I said to myself. But what about years of seeing God's goodness in the land of the living? What of those days? And this, his saying just echoed in my mind, do not fear, only believe. I couldn't speak my faith or my trust. A word didn't come out of my mouth. The only way that I could make clear that I was still clinging to the edge of this cliff of faith and that I wanted to, to reach over the top of that cliff and see again, the only thing and the only way I could communicate that was just keep stepping one foot in front of the other, with Jesus leading me on. I could put one foot in front of the other, and just standing there felt like faith. And I plodded quietly behind him, following the messenger back to the house. That was faith. But never had each step felt so hard and so burdened with doubt and questions, so many questions. Why timing like this, so close, so far away? Isn't there a better time, a better time to show up at the door of my dead daughter's room? When we came to my house, Jesus saw the commotion, people weeping, wailing. 
And when he entered, he said to them, why are you making such a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but just sleeping. And they laughed at him. I almost laughed at him, but I just held on. I felt like I was just dreaming then, and I could only follow Jesus and let, let him lead. I couldn't even speak. And he put everybody outside of the room. He took me and my wife, who had fallen into my arms, and the three disciples who were with him, Peter, James, and John. And we went in there where my dead daughter's body was. When I saw Jesus standing beside my dead daughter, I almost, I almost tried to stop him. I almost tried to stop him from touching this, her because she was unclean. I remembered immediately Numbers 19, 11. Again, it was a man of the book that whoever touches the dead person will be unclean for seven days. What's worth, and I, I almost warned Jesus is that if he touched this dead person, didn't go through the ritualistic cleaning, that he himself would have defiled the temple of the Lord and, and that that person would be cut off from all of Israel. But before I could even warn him, he took her by the hand and he just said, Talitha kumi. In Aramaic, my daughter, my little girl, I say to you, Arise. And immediately my daughter, my dead daughter, got up and began walking around with as much energy as she had had earlier that week. My 11-year-old, my 12-year-old dead daughter was there walking around the room. And my wife and I were overcome with amazement. We didn't know what to say. We just looked at each other. I just felt her pulse. And it was, there was nothing there, and now she's walking around, healed. And we looked at each other, and we looked at this man, and we said, who is this man who heals not just those who are sick, but raises the dead? Who is this? And then he, he said something we didn't expect. We wanted to explode out of that room and shout about what Jesus had done. And then he, he strictly charged us. He looked at us, and he said, don't tell anybody about what I've just done. And by the way, your daughter's hungry. Get her something to eat. <laughs> what? Don't. How can I keep this secret? How, isn't there a better time to keep things secret? I, uh, and I just paused. And I wondered, why this? And right then, as an insider in the community of synagogues, I remembered some of the things I had heard. The leaders were already talking about how to get this man out of the picture. And I knew that the more that he healed and gave life to others, the more that every time he healed, it was like a, a nail in his own coffin. And the more that this man would be known as powerful, as life-giving, the more that leaders like myself would want him dead. For years, I thought about this. And I thought about lessons to be learned. How reckless he was with his own life and how careful and kind he was with these two women. I thought about a lot of lessons. One I've realized is that even when it seems that time is not on our side, if Jesus is on our side, 
we can wait and trust. Time is Jesus' servant, and it bows and does his bidding. Even when it feels like time is ticking away and is wearing away at your very existence, Jesus is over time, and it is his servant and does his bidding. I also realized that I needed to learn to trust the person, not the circumstances. To trust Jesus and not your situation. I saw the situation and the larger it loomed, the more I struggled. But the more that I looked at Jesus and trusted in Jesus, the smaller my struggle seemed. When I looked within, there was despair. When I looked around me, I was depressed. But when I looked to Jesus, I sensed rest. Another thing that I learned is about the central importance of believing or not believing. Jesus causes faith to grow under the pressure and the constraints of time. That I could go between peacefully trusting and struggling in the deeps of doubt within one minute's time. And the importance of whether I trusted Christ or not will be the matter of whether or not I would have a peaceful life or a troubled life. I learned that day that Jesus himself was the ruler of time. And rather than asking him the question about what he's doing and about isn't there a better time to trust that he knew exactly what he was doing day in and day out. Lord, we praise you for the stories of your word. We ask you that you'd help each one of us to dwell upon what you have done, to consider how you have dealt with people in the past and how you continue to deal with us here and now. Lord, you're good. Your word is sweet. It is rich. Help us, Lord, to see the word made flesh who came and dwelt in time and history to heal the most broken and weak. Lord, you know those who this morning are broken and weak and need, who need to remember and who need to see Jesus, some for the first time. We ask in your name that you would give life and that through your word you would allow us to trust you, to hear you speaking to us. Do not fear, only believe. Lord, help us to not fear, but to trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.